0: There it is. Now it's on. Okay. So I want to encourage you. I did actually recognize James as he was waving back there. Uh, I want to challenge you and encourage you to read all of those chapters in full at some point this week. We will do at least a summary of all of them. Uh, But really, this passage is going to break down in three different parts. Uh, Part one, we're going to see Jacob and his sons and all of Israel in Egypt as they begin to prosper in Egypt and grow in Egypt eventually leading to the over two million people over 400 years later that Moses leads out of Egypt. So part one, Israel in Egypt. Part two will be Jacob blessing his sons. So Jacob, wise, old Jacob, is going to be speaking his last words, and he speaks these last words out over his sons in the form of blessing. So we'll look at Jacob blessing his sons. And then third, we're going to see the end of the matter. The end of the matter is part three. This is a big in-conclusion sermon. Okay, all through Genesis, now in conclusion, what? The book of Ecclesiastes does a really great job of concluding, making concluding remarks. Uh, And it says this at the very end. The last verse says, this is the end of the matter. All has been heard, fear God, and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. It kind of wraps it up real nice, puts it together in a bow, puts it on top, of the book of Ecclesiastes, and and finishes it. It's complete. This is the end of the matter. In some ways, this is what's happening in the book of Genesis. Likewise, these chapters are going to provide for us a conclusion, a fitting ending, as we begin to think through the entirety of the book. And it's going to do so an amazing statement from Joseph that kind of gives commentary on not just Genesis and not just the Old Testament. It gives us commentary on the whole Book of the Bible, really, the entire scope of human history. So we get a final aha moment. It's kind of like a final light bulb, you know, ding, ding, ding. Oh, oh, okay, I get it. That will help us understand, really, just kind of why the world is the way it is and what God is doing in it. God and the amazing grace that brings us and God together. We're going to, sing to see it all. So we got a big conclusion today. So, we're going to find some treasures part one genesis chapter 47 in genesis chapter 47 we see a two-way blessing joseph as i give some summarizing points to the chapter joseph went back to get his family with the riches of egypt to bring them back and pharaoh as he stands before jacob the god man tells him that you can settle in the land of goshen In chapter 47, verse 6, he tells Pharaoh, tells Jacob to go settle in Goshen and put them then in charge of all of Pharaoh's livestock, and then Pharaoh ends up blessing the family. You can read it uh, along with me in chapter 47, verse 6. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of land, and let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. Pharaoh... I said he was talking to Joseph. He was at first talking to Jacob or said he was talking to jo- Jacob. He was at first talking to Joseph, said, "Hey, let them settle, and what you're going to do is you're going to have them be in charge of all of the livestock. They're shepherd they're shepherds, and so now they're going to be in charge of all the royal uh, livestock. And it's interesting, the livestock is now huge. The royal livestock is huge because Joseph had been making deals with the people in Egypt and the surrounding area who were coming to Egypt for grain. And so it went like this. People were coming to Joseph and saying, here's our money, we need grain. So Joseph began to collect the riches, not just of Egypt, but riches of the surrounding areas for Pharaoh. And he would collect this money and give out the grain. Time would go on and the people would come back with no money in their pockets to give, but empty bellies needing food. So they would come back and they would say, hey, we will give you our livestock in exchange for grain. So they began to give all their livestock to Pharaoh in exchange for grain. So Joseph continues to accumulate wealth. Now he's got for Pharaoh, not just the money, he's also got the livestock. Well, another round of famine continues. This famine is just really, really hard in Egypt and the surrounding areas. And so people have already given their money and they've already given their livestock. What else are they going to give? They come back to Egypt and they say, Joseph, we will give ourselves as servants to the throne and we will give up our land. So now Pharaoh has all the money, all the livestock, people to work the fields, and the fields themselves. But Pharaoh is really actually quite generous because he says to them, Here's the deal if you'll just give me 20%, you can keep the 80%. And you'll work the fields, and you'll keep my livestock, and you can accumulate wealth for yourself to keep. It's not all mine. You give me 20%, and you keep as you can keep it in the ground, you can keep it wherever you want. 80% of everything is yours. Well, Joseph then gives word to his family that they're going to be in charge of lands and livestock, and they begin to grow and grow and grow. It's interesting because in verses 7 through 12, Pharaoh and Jacob are face to face, and Jacob blesses Pharaoh two times. So Pharaoh blesses Jacob, and Jacob in turn blesses Pharaoh. And it's interesting that Pharaoh and Jacob have something that unites them. It brings them together. Two people, unlikely people to be blessing each other, but something, or better said, someone has united them. Because of Joseph and the relationship that both men have with them, these men can not only tolerate each other, they can bless each other. And friends, here's the key to Christian unity. When we are in relation to Jesus... Our Joseph, the true and better Joseph, what happens? Unity. When you say, well, I don't have anything in common with my brothers and sisters wherever. Well, they're older, or they're younger, or they like this kind of music, or they like that kind of music, or they're from this area of the world, and I'm from this area of the world. If you have a relationship with Jesus, the deepest part about you is united to the deepest part about them, and here is unity. Here we see an example of that, of two people who should not be blessing each other, but are blessing each other because they are in relation and have a relationship with Joseph. Joseph unites two unlikely people, and these two unlikely people are now giving blessings back and forth. Our true and better Joseph unites us. Uh, I think we would do well to learn from Pharaoh and from Jacob to bless one another. And here's what something I've seen in our church. It's been really, really interesting. Um, God has worked a real spirit of togetherness here where we actually enjoy giving words of blessing to each other but also just blessings in all sorts of ways i see people when we had our our uh, baby shower and you i mean just everything that we needed it's just god has just continued to provide and i want to encourage you to learn from pharaoh and learn from jacob to bless one another when jesus unites people we in turn bless one another we don't just live this isolated life receiving blessing from god but not blessing each other We receive blessing from God, and then we bless one another. And that example is seen clearly in chapter 47. In chapter 47, verse 13 to 27, the famine begins to get worse, and and it's continuing to go bad. Uh, The chapter goes on to tell about the happenings and the results of this seven-year famine. So as you're reading through it, you're going to see what's the fallout. What is the result of seven years of famine on a land and on a region? And it was so bad that the people of Egypt and the surrounding cities, they all came to buy, the, and then Joseph accumulated all this wealth, and then, uh, and then they got to keep the 80%. So it was so bad that it dra- drove everyone in the region to sell everything that they had and give themselves even to, to Pharaoh. And then we see Jacob give some deathbed Words in verse 29 through 31, read with me. It's going to launch us into the next chapter. Verse 29. And when they drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If I have now found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in the burying place, in their burying place. And he answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, Swear to me. And he swore to him. And then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. This is the end. The patriarch, Jacob, is at his deathbed. And when you have your right mind at your deathbed, which many people do, some people when they go to their deathbed have lost their ability to think and reason, unfortunately. Some people go to their deathbed with the ability to communicate with the ability to think and reason and speak. This was the case with Jacob. So what's he going to say? And what's he going to do? We get to be a fly on the wall. We get to go in the room with Jacob and his sons. We get to hear a dying man's words. He's going to honor God, and he's going to bless his sons. Chapter 48 Joseph begins, excuse me, Jacob begins to speak. And it's fascinating as you go and read that this week. Jacob begins to speak to Joseph and Joseph had now had two sons. And Jacob because he has so much love for Joseph, negotiates a deal with Jacob with Joseph and says, "Joseph, Ephraim and Manasseh, your two boys, I'm going to treat as my sons." Being a good grandpa. He says, Joseph, now, he didn't do this for all his grandchildren, but for his beloved son, Joseph, he said, your boys, they're my boys. I'm going to treat them as my sons. He adopts them, and in verse 15, he speaks blessings over his two adopted sons, his grandchildren. And in verse 20 and 21, Jacob shows that he still has great love and compassion for his son, Joseph, he gives Jacob, Jacob gives Joseph some of the best land that he owns, but he doesn't yet bless him. He lefts that, leaves that blessing for the next chapter. He doesn't yet bless him, so he gives to his sons. And then in chapter 49, we see the blessings to the sons begin. He begins to bless, starting with the oldest son first, Reuben, and then going to the second, Oldest son, Simon, and the third, Simeon, and the third, Levi. So we're a fly on the wall in the room. What is Jacob going to say to his boys? Well, first, he speaks to Reuben. Look at 49, verse 1. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together, that I may tell you what shall happen in the days to come. Assemble and listen, sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. Reuben, you're my firstborn. My might and the first fruits of the strength are preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence because you went up into your father's bed and then you defiled it. And he went up to my couch. Simon, Simeon and Levi are brothers, weapons of violence and their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel, O oh, my glory, be not joined to their company, for in their anger they killed men. And in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. It's, it's interesting to me that the first three words spoken to the three sons are not words of specific positive blessing but we see Jacob pass over his first three sons and pass over from giving them positive blessings. Reuben the firstborn defiled his father's bed and so he was passed over. The blessing that should have come his way did not come his way because of his action and his sin. Simon, Simeon and Levi slaughtered the Shechemites. Remember the fallout from Dinah? Dinah was mistreated. Um And the aftermath of the Shechemites is that after they all were circumcised, Simeon and Levi went in and they just annihilated all the men of the Shechemites in trying to get vengeance for their their sister. And so they were passed over. There was no positive blessing secured for them. Blessing did not come to the first three. And so on to the fourth. Well, who was the fourth? Well, Judah was the fourth. In verse 8 we get this, Judah, your brother shall shall praise you and your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's club, lion's cub from the prey. My son, you have gone up. He stood down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Judah ended up being an honorable son. Uh, if you remember, when Benjamin, when he, uh, when he returned and, and Simeon was left at, uh, at Egypt, uh, when they went back to tell Jacob, hey, we can't go back unless we bring our youngest son, Benjamin, Judah was the one who ended up standing up and saying, listen, I will substitute myself. And if something happens to Benjamin, if, if somehow or another he's the one, if he doesn't come back, I will do everything in my power. I will substitute myself so that Benjamin can go free. And we see that he actually does this. He put his words into action. And Judas, Judah was, ended up being the first of Jacob's sons then who received a positive word of blessing from his father. The blessing continues, continues in the life of Judah. And we find out years later that Uh, The line of the tribe of Judah is all this lion language was attached to to Judah, the fourth son. We know that the line that comes, the blessing comes through, is, is this son Judah. And it's fascinating, in the life of Judah, the one who would substitute himself would be the one who would receive the first word of positive blessing from the patriarch, from his father Jacob. And these connections continue to grow and build as we finish this book. And then we see in verse 18, in all the middle of the blessing that's coming upon the sons, or the words that are being spoken over the sons, we see a very interesting verse. It's speaking to all his sons, and then out of nowhere we get verse 18. And I want you to look very specifically at verse 18, and because I want you to see the posture of Jacob before the Lord. He says this, after blessing and speaking to uh, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, and then to Zebulon and Issachar and Dan, Verse 18, right in the middle, he says this, I wait for your salvation, O Lord. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Out of seemingly nowhere, Jacob speaks something different than what he's been speaking in the room with his boys. These are the last recorded words of Jacob other than the blessings of his sons. So we get more words recorded. But it's going specifically to his boys. These words are the very last one, very last words that he speaks that are not the blessings to his son. He stops in the middle of his last conversation and says, I wait for your salvation, O Lord. And I just want you to kind of get where where Jacob is in his life. Uh, God's man is longing for God's salvation. And Jacob's enduring legacy is not necessarily his morally wonderful life. We've seen Jacob stumble and fall just like his father and just like his grandfather. But what is the enduring legacy of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Is it their uh, moral credibility? Certainly they had some, moral, uh, some morality about them, but they had some major moral blunders. They were, in the end, men of faith. They believed God And his promises by the grace of God. And Jacob's enduring legacy is that he has faith in God. Um, After all, the righteous shall live by faith. And here is Jacob at the end of his life clinging to the salvation of the Lord. Uh, As we near death, this needs to be in our mind. Because each one of us, wherever you're at tomorrow, you're going to be closer to death than you are right now. And my hope for us is that we would have a growing dependence on the Lord waiting and longing for the salvation of the Lord. There's going to be a day that Christ returns or a day that we die and we come home. And I think right now, even now, it would be right and appropriate for us to cultivate a longing for Christ to save us finally and fully. And we see this, I long for the salvation of the Lord. That's what God's men and women do. And then finally, Jacob dies. He blesses all of his sons. He speaks to them, giving some negative sorts of blessings and some positive sorts of blessings to his boys. He continues to bless his sons and can clearly, because of his statement in verse 18, it seems like Jacob's heart is in the right place. And then in verse 28, we find, okay, here's where the blessing or where the 12 tribes of Israel come from. In verse 28, we hear this, and these are the 12 tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with a blessing suitable to him. So Jacob, as he's dying at the end of this chapter, uh, we have now in place, as we try to piece together biblical history, we have now the 12 tribes of Israel that we've learned about. We've learned about the patriarchs, okay? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. His name is changed to Israel, and he had 12 sons. And so here we have our 12 tribes of Israel, and we have Israel now living and growing in Egypt. So sometimes those things can be helpful as we begin to piece together, piece together the Bible. Jacob dies, and he is buried. In verse 12 through 14 of chapter 50, we see that he is in fact buried, that his sons granted his last wish that he would be be buried not in the land of Egypt, but in the land of Canaan, and he is buried, and we see that in 12 through 14. You can look and read with me. Thus his sons did for him as he commanded them, for his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in a cave in the field of Machpelah, in the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with, bought with the field from Ephron, the Hittite, Hittite, to possess as a burying place. And After he buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. Jacob is now dead and buried. Now, that's the history of Genesis. Now, let's piece together some things and let's put together this gospel bow and let's finish this book rightly, because the, the God of the universe is going to take, take us to a place that's so beautiful, and we're going to get to stand back here in a minute and just stand in awe of what God has done, and we're going to get some answers to some questions that we may have had going through this book and as we read through the Bible. But I want us to see the end of the matter. Just like in the book of Ecclesiastes, this is the end of the matter. Here we go. This is the end of the matter. Let's take it home. So let's look. Genesis, starting in verse 15, Genesis chapter 50, starting in verse 15. Then Joseph, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. I want you to see this. I want you to see that the grace of Joseph was in doubt. Now that Jacob was dead, the brothers began to question, will Jacob's death lead to our disfavor from Joseph? Will Joseph now hate us again? Will he get retribution? Will he get payback? Is what's coming to us finally coming to us? Has Joseph really forgiven us? Really? Are we really forgiven? Are we really in good favor with this powerful Joseph? Because apparently in the back of their minds, they doubted the heart of Joseph. They thought there was some condition that could be met that would lead to them being now, instead of being looked at favorably, they would be looked at disfavorably from their brother who had forgiven them. Is, heart, is Joseph's heart in question? Apparently in their minds it is. They're asking questions and wondering, is he still mad? Is he going to get back at us? Is payback now ours? Are we really forgiven? Or is there something there that's going unspoken? When we talk to Joseph, is there some in the back of Joseph's mind, is he tapping his foot, waiting to get back at them, to pounce, to finally give them what they really deserve? Is he still mad? You see, distrust in Joseph led to them, led them to do some silly things. They tried to procure their blessing and favor from their brother, from their powerful brother. Because they distrusted his heart, they began to get to work. And they began to scheme and plan. How can we preserve a good favor upon ourselves? How can we keep Joseph happy? How can we make him favorable upon us or stay favorable upon us? Distrust in Joseph led them to try to self-preserve. Look in verse 16. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgressions of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgressions of your servants of God, of, of the God of your father. In Joseph's grieving, they tried to play on that grief and procure for themselves what they thought they didn't have anymore. So they came up with this idea, tell Joseph, that his father said to forgive them and make sure everything is okay. They thought this will be it. This is going to be the way that Joseph won't get back at us anymore. This is going to be the way we can stay in good graces with our brothers, with our brother. If we are going to live in their mind it was up to them to preserve their place of safety and security. It's up to me. Friends, the parallels here are just amazing. In our Christian life, we are overwhelmed with the grace of God, and we continue to live our life and follow Him, but in the back of our minds, often we question, really? Am I really forgiven? Is the favor of God really upon me? I mean, I've been performing terribly. I have been acting badly. I have not been pursuing Him as passionately as I once did. I've not been memorizing the Bible like I used to. Is he really pleased with me? Am I really a forgiven man? And after enjoying the forgiveness and grace of Joseph for so many years in spite of their sins, in spite of their sins, they now felt like their work, their planning and their scheming could preserve for themselves safety and security. I thought it was up to them again. They distrusted the heart of their brother. After years of walking with the Lord, The enemy has a way, circumstances have a way, our world has a way. We come and we think and our flesh has a way of distrusting the heart of the Father. Of questioning, of doubting, and depending more upon our planning and our scheming and our performance to stay in grace. We see the parallels here work beautifully. In hearing this, Joseph responds... And his response tells us so much, I think, about the heart of God and the heart of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Look at verse 17, the end of the verse. He says this. I've got to find my place. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear For am I in the place of God? As for you, what you meant evil against me, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. When Joseph hears about their plan, he begins to weep. Don't you get it, brothers? I've forgiven you. You don't have to manipulate. You don't have to scheme You don't have to try to get in with me. You're forgiven. I've forgiven you. Am I in the place of God? No, no, brothers. You need to know, brothers, that God did something here. Yes, you screwed up. And what you meant for evil, and you really meant it for evil, God meant it for good. And God did something good with it. This is the story of the Bible. This is the bow that we begin to put together to put on top of the present as we finish this book. This is the story of the Bible. Here we have our work on display. The work of the brothers. Sin, debauchery, rebellion, evil against God and against others. And here also we have God's work and His goodness and His salvation. This is the biblical narrative. It's the story of all of Genesis. As we reflect back over and over and over again, we think about what humans have screwed up, starting in the garden. God did something for good, and what did we do? We took and we we tried to spoil it. We distrusted the heart of God, sinned against Him. From that point on, we see humans over and over again sinning. We see God's men doing crazy things. And yet, what does God do? What we are intending for evil, God is working something good and beautiful. Story after story after story, we saw redemption. We saw God's work. We saw humans getting in trouble, sinning against God, and then God coming through in compassion. This is the story of the Bible. Our work, God's work. This is the story of global religion. Our work, God's work. What do we trust? Our work or God's work? Which is it? Global religion with a unified voice says, you can get to God. It's up to you. And they play the song of the brothers over and over again. I'm just going to scheme and I'm going to procure for myself security and safety. And I'm going to come up with a way to get grace. To earn it. Christianity comes along and says, no, there's nothing you can do. You're hopeless. You can't earn. You can't give. You can't. Strive, you can't buy this. All you can do is receive. God saves us. It's God's work to rescue and seek and to save the lost. God's not lost, we are. So we have God's work and we have our work or our work and God's work. This is the story of all of the biblical narrative. It points us time and time again to what we looked at last week, the cross of Christ. An evil action, our sin, as James said earlier, our works, our evil, we are the cause of the cross. And yet in Isaiah 53, verse 10, it says, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Who put Christ on the cross? Sinners. Who put Christ on the cross? God. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. And in this truth, this our work, we put Christ on the cross, God's work, God put him there to save us, to save sinners. We see grotesque sin and we see the glory of God. And this points us over and over again, this book, outside even of itself, to consider where is salvation found, in us or in God? And Joseph calls his brother to consider the work of God. Uh, We're in the same boat. Really are. The Christian life is a lifelong pursuit of distrusting ourselves. Lifelong pursuit of distrusting ourselves and trusting and believing in the work of God. Our eyes, like the brothers, are so focused on evil and so focused on ourselves and the evil that we have done, the evil that we do. We have to start thinking there's no way, we start thinking, there's no way God could love me, there's no way that I'm forgiven. And we start thinking, what can I do to get better? What can I do to avoid getting payback? And then we come out with our hard work plans. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fix this. Friends, beloved, brothers, sisters, family, Genesis is calling us to the work of God. This is the bow. God is at work. God has done something. This isn't about you. It's not about what you've done. You do stuff intending it for evil. God does something for you and He intends it for good. And He loves you. As surely as Joseph had forgiven his brothers, God has more so forgiven His children. Cast away doubt. Cast away fear. And we are free to look to Christ. To trust in Him. This response is so beautiful. In verse 21, look at this. In response to Joseph appealing to God's work, what does he say? Verse 21, he says, So do not fear. Do not fear, for I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. In in sight of, in light of, the work of God, Joseph tells his brothers, Hey, don't fear. It's absolutely staggering. The life of the believer, therefore, is free of condemnation and fear of future judgment. It's full of fear as in awe, but is not full of fear as in scared of punishment. There's no condemnation. Behold the work of God. This is the testimony of Genesis God has done something for you, God has provided for us he comforts us and he speaks kindly to us but here's the reality joseph died his provision was limited fortunately we have jesus who does not die who did not simply die and stay dead joseph is <laughs> jesus is alive 22 through 26 we hear of joseph's death joseph died jesus lives So God uses Joseph, maybe more than anyone in the entire Bible, in the entire Old Testament, to point us to Jesus. Clear picture. He could come through his brothers for his brothers only as long as he lived on this earth. So Joseph could provide for them, and then Joseph would die. And then his provision would end. But here is the truth of the work of Jesus, that his provision never ends. That you and I, the provision of Jesus, the work of Jesus, goes on throughout all eternity. And we are forever His, and He is forever ours. Jesus died and came back to life. He lives, and our Joseph is ours forevermore. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for Your grace and kindness to us in Jesus Christ. I thank You for the book of Genesis. I thank You that You have spoken tenderly to us through this book. This book points us time and time again to your work. And help us as we sing these songs to consider your work. Each week we receive communion. Each week we sing songs that are declaring, just like we sang earlier, that our salvation is not in our work. We saw it in the garden with Adam and Eve. They sin against you and they try to fix it. They try to clothe themselves and cover, cover their shame we see the roots of man-made made religion just trying to fix it, fix it, fix it. And for here, us in this room right now, wherever it may be, we may be in our life, God, help us to just cling to your work on our behalf. Help us to know that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Help us to distrust our work and help us to trust in your work. Help us to know the things that we've done in our life that we've intended for evil, God is intending things for good. Some of the very things that we think are biggest screw-ups, sins, and blunders were in fact God doing something in us, changing us, showing us His glory, somehow bringing us to a point of desperation where we would cling to Him. And so help us now to respond. It's going to be our joy to sing and to worship you. It's in His name we pray. Amen.